Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for HR in the time of COVID-19. I am Lena Loomis, the Publications Manager for TMA Practice Management Education. A few things to cover before we get started. A link to additional resources are available in the materials section. Today's podcast is approved for enduring CME credit in accordance with CME requirements. Please note the content of this material does not relate to any product of a commercial interest. Therefore, there are no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Next, please understand that TMA provides this information as general information. This is not a substitute for the advice of an attorney. For many, how we are working today has changed drastically in response to COVID-19. Employment regulations have been adapted, leaving physicians as small business owners with many questions about leave versus furlough versus layoffs and paid time off. With me today via speakerphone is Sherry Williams, the Director of Human Resources at TMA, and Abby Lee, Assistant General Counsel at TMA, to provide answers to questions we're getting at the Texas Medical Association. Sherry and Abby, thank you for joining us today. Sherry, let's start with the HR update. Thank you, Lena. Hi, everyone. Again, thank you for joining us today. These are different circumstances, aren't they? As we're coming to grips with the coronavirus and COVID-19, I'm coming to realize that it's easier to compartmentalize things so I can keep everything that's going on in some sort of perspective. As I was reading one of the many articles on what we're going to be speaking about today, someone was right on point. While this virus has brought us much of the world as we know it to a temporary halt, employment laws and employers' obligations are not on hold. So today, Abby and I are going to cover a few of the topics that we as employers need to pay attention to as we find our way through this pandemic. We hope you'll find it helpful. Our agenda will cover terminology, wages and hours, employee benefits and its effect during this crisis, and the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And with that, we'll go into terminology. This is a general recap of what we all know. Non-exempt employees are entitled to earn at least the federal minimum wage, which was $7.25 an hour for every hour they work. They're also entitled to overtime pay through the Fair Labor Standards Act, the FLSA, which is calculated at one and a half times their hourly rate for every hour they work above and beyond a 40-hour work week. Exempt employees are paid a salary as opposed to an hourly basis. They earn at least $684 a week, which is around $35,500 annually, and are paid a salary for any week they work. They must meet certain employment tests regarding their job duties, which would include executive, administrative, professional, or outside sales. The salary level and basis test does not apply to outside sales, doctors, lawyers, teachers, 
and certain computer-related occupations. We want to talk about some terms that can also get confusing. For purposes of today's discussion, a furlough refers to a temporary unpaid leave of absence. Furloughs can save the practice money during a downturn while maintaining your workforce. A layoff is a termination occurring through no fault of the employee. Layoffs occur during times like these as well, due to poor practice finances or the lack of work. However, a layoff can be a type of termination where the employee may be recalled to work. A termination is when you decide to permanently end the employment relationship. As is a reduction in force, but it's a little bit different. A reduction in force is also referred to as a RIF for the acronym. It's when the employer decides to reduce headcount, where with a termination, they may replace that position. Sometimes the terms layoff and RIF are used interchangeably. Typically, though, a layoff refers to the possibility of the employee being recalled, where a reduction in force generally applies to a permanent reduction in headcount. Let's talk about wages and hours. These are questions that have been coming up since this crisis hit. Can an employer reduce the pay rate or number of hours of a non-exempt employee? Yes, as long as you are still paying them at least the minimum wage, bottom line with non-exempt employees, you must pay for hours worked. Can an employer reduce an exempt employee's salary due to a slowdown in business? This one does get a little complicated, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but just to help us all get on the same page, an employer may reduce the salary amount of an exempt employee during a business or economic slowdown, provided the change is bona fide and not used to evade the salary basis requirement. However, in order to maintain their exempt status, the employee must still receive at least the $684 per week. If you reduce that predetermined salary of an exempt employee below that rate, it will ordinarily cause a loss of the exemption and further the employee must then be paid at least the minimum wage and overtime pay as required by the FLSA. Can an employee who's exempt volunteer to take time off due to lack of work? If the employer is seeking volunteers to take this time off due to insufficient work and the exempt employee volunteers for personal reasons only, other than sick or disability, style reductions may be made for one or more full days of missed work, but it must be completely voluntary. Let's talk about benefits. If you provide health insurance to your staff and decide to furlough employees during this crisis, please know that many carriers are waiving their eligibility criteria for furloughed workers, furloughed or, or reduced hours. Specifically, some carriers have indicated that they'll consider the furloughed employees still eligible for benefits provided the employer continue to pay the employer portion of the premium during the furloughed period. 
it's important that you check with your carrier. Terminated employees are not extended the same benefit. If you offer health insurance and your practice has more than 20 employees, then COBRA would apply. However, practices with fewer than 20 employees must offer the Texas Continuation Benefit. Unemployment insurance. Unemployment is generally available for those who become unemployed at no fault of their own. Please know that this also pertains to furloughed employees or employees whose hours have been reduced. They should also contact the unemployment agency to see if they're eligible for benefit. We need to help everyone out as much as we can during this time. Due to the overwhelmed call centers and technical issues that we've seen in all the news media of late, the Texas Workforce Commission, the TWC, announced this week that they hope to space out the demand rather than having everyone call at the same time. It posted recommended call and access time by area code of the applicant. So, for example, area code beginning with 9, you'd call in on Monday, Wednesday, and or Friday between the hours of 8 a.m. to noon. Know that under the new stimulus bill, employees will be eligible for an additional unemployment benefit on top of the state benefit of 600 per week for up to four months until July 31st, 2020. Unemployment workers will receive 39 weeks of unemployment benefits, which will carry them through the end of 2020. Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Abby will be taking the heavy lifting on this topic, but let's just discuss the basics of the provision. The FSCRA was signed into law on March 18th 2020 and went into effect April 1. It provides eligible employees with paid sick leave and paid expanded family and medical leave for specified reasons related to COVID-19. Again, it, was, it expires on December 31st, 2020. The FFCRA was enacted to help the United States combat and defeat COVID-19 by reimbursing American private employers that have fewer than 500 employees with tax credits for the cost of providing employees with the paid leave taken for specified reasons related to COVID-19. The legislation will ensure that workers are not forced to choose between paychecks and the public health measures needed to combat this virus, while at the same time reimbursing businesses. The DOL website it's full of helpful information, including fact sheets, FAQs, even a webinar. You'll also find the Department of Labor regulations here in this presentation. With that, I'll turn it over to Abby so she can help you understand the nuances of the act. Abby? Thanks so much, Sherry. So let's jump right in. Um, there are a lot of questions about the FFCRA, and one of the first questions you might ask yourself is who does this apply to? And let's start with employers first. So who is a covered employer under the FFCRA? Well, Sherry mentioned uh, this earlier, but a covered employer includes private employers with fewer than 500 employees, including nonprofits and certain public employers. Now, for most of us, determining whether or not we fit into that 500 limit threshold is probably an easy determination. You're either way smaller or way larger. 
Um, but the Department of Labor, as Sherry mentioned, on their website has provided some guidance to help in determining that 500 employee threshold limit. So if you need that assistance, check out uh, that page, the Department of Labor FAQs. Now, are there exceptions? Uh, of course, yes, there are exceptions. Uh, the two we're going to be talking about today are the small business exception and the healthcare provider and first responders exception. So let's start with the small business exception. What this exception says is that an employer, including a religious or nonprofit organization with fewer than 50 employees, so 49 or fewer employees, is exempt from providing paid sick leave or expanded family medical leave due to school or place of care closures or child care provider unavailability for COVID-19 related reasons. And we'll get to more about that in a moment. When doing so would jeopardize the viability of the small business as a going concern. How do you claim the, the exemption? A small business can claim the exemption if an authorized officer of the business has determined one of these three things, either that the provision of paid sick leave or expanded family medical leave would result in the small business's expenses and financial obligations exceeding available business revenue and cause the small business to cease operating at a minimal capacity. The second is the absence of the employee or employees requesting leave would entail a substantial risk to the financial health or operational capabilities of the small business because of their specialized skills, knowledge of the business, or responsibilities. Or finally, there are not sufficient workers who are able, willing, and qualified and who will be available at the time and place needed to perform the labor or services provided by the employee or employees requesting leave as these labor or services are needed for the small business to operate at a minimal capacity. So in order to elect this exemption, employer must document the determination by its authorized officer that it is eligible for the exemption pursuant to one of those criteria, and then retain that documentation for four years. Now, a common question we've been hearing or a common misconception is, do I send this to the Department of Labor? Does the Department of Labor determine whether or not I, I obtain or receive this exemption? No, there is no application process. Employers should not send this documentation to the Department of Labor. They have to retain those records for their own files. So it's not something the Department of Labor does. It's, it's something that the employer themselves are determining. So that's the small business exception. What about the healthcare provider and emergency responder exception? Under this exception, an employer whose employee is a healthcare provider or an emergency responder may elect to exclude the employee from the paid sick leave or expanded family and medical leave under the FFCRA. So the employer can elect, they can choose to do this. What's the definition of a healthcare provider? The Department of Labor regulations include a very, very broad definition. A healthcare provider is defined as anyone employed at the doctor's office, hospital, healthcare center, clinic, post-secondary educational institution offering healthcare instruction, medical school, local health department or agency, nursing facility, retirement facility, nursing home, home healthcare provider, 
for any facility that performs laboratory or medical testing, a pharmacy, or any similar institution, employer, or entity. The definition goes on to say that any individual employed by an entity that contracts with any of these institutions described above to provide services or to maintain the operation of this facility where the individual services support the operation of the facility is also considered a healthcare provider, as is anyone employed by an entity that provides medical services, produces medical products, or is otherwise involved in the making of COVID-19 related medical equipment, tests, drugs, vaccines, diagnostic vehicles, or treatments. Finally, the states are allowed to add more people, more individuals to that definition as they determine necessary um, for their purposes. So again, a very broad definition. Emergency responder definition is similarly broad. Uh, it's defined as anyone necessary for the provision of transport, care, healthcare, comfort, and nutrition of such patients or others needed for the response to COVID-19. And it includes military, National Guard, law enforcement, correctional institution personnel, firefighters, EMS personnel, physicians, nurses, public health personnel, the list goes on. This definition also includes that ability for the state uh, to determine who is an emergency responder as necessary for their response to COVID-19. Now, one thing that I will note is although the Department of Labor has made these definitions broad, in their regulations, uh, in their guidance, they encourage employers to be judicious when using these definitions to exempt healthcare providers and emergency responders from the provisions of the FFCRA. Why? Well, to minimize the spread of COVID-19. So it's at the election of the employer, but the Department of Labor encourages employers to be judicious. So we've talked about employers, who's covered. We've talked about uh, exceptions. What about employees? Uh, who is an eligible employee under the FFCRA? And that answer depends on whether we are, we are talking about paid sick leave or paid expanded family and medical leave. You have to separate the two. So for paid sick leave, all employees of the covered employer are considered eligible. For paid expanded family and medical leave, however, employees who have been employed by a covered employer for at least 30 calendar days are eligible. The Department of Labor regulations have clarified what this means. They've said that an employee is considered to have been employed by an employer for at least 30 calendar days if either of the following two scenarios apply. The first is pretty straightforward. The employee had the employee, the employer had the employee on its payroll for the 30 calendar days immediately prior to the day that the employee's leave would begin. So, for example, let's say that the employee wanted to take leave on April 1st, the earliest day uh, that they could. That means that the employee must have been on the employer's payroll as of March 2nd in order to qualify for the expanded family and medical leave. Another scenario, however, that the Department of Labor uh, lays out is if the employee was laid off or otherwise terminated by the employer on or after March 1st of 2020, but was rehired or otherwise reemployed by the employer on or before December 31st, 2020. 
provided that the employee had been on the employer's payroll for 30 or more of the 60 calendar days prior to the date the employee was laid off or otherwise terminated. So that's the other scenario. So what's an example? So let's say an employee was originally hired by the employer on January 15th of 2020, but was laid off on March 14th of 2020. That employee could be eligible for paid leave if that same employer rehired the employee on October 1st of 2020. So let's get into the paid leave requirements. What are the actual reasons that an employee can take paid leave under the FFCRA? Let me first start by saying that remember, paid leave doesn't apply to situations where the employer doesn't have work for the employee to do. So if the business is closed or an employee is furloughed because there is no work, uh, this doesn't apply. There has to be work for the employee to do and then the employee is unable to do that work because of one of the qualifying reasons we're about to talk about. So just like eligible employees, there's different requirements depending on whether we're talking about paid sick leave or paid expanded family medical leave. The qualifying reasons are different as well. So let's first focus on paid sick leave. Under the FFCRA, an employee qualifies for paid sick time if the employee is unable to work or telework, so neither work or telework, for one of these reasons, due to a need for leave because the employee is subject to one of these reasons. So first, the first category here, the employee is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order related to COVID-19. Now, what's interesting about this one is the Department of Labor regulations say that a quarantine or isolation order actually includes a shelter in place or stay at home order that many of us are subject to right now. But remember, there still has to be the inability for the employee to work or telework aspect for this to apply. So the Department of Labor provided a, an example that helped to illustrate how this might work in a shelter in place or stay at home. So generally, if an employee is subject to a shelter in place order, but the employee is permitted or able to work from home, they're not uh, entitled or eligible for paid sick leave. However, let's say that the employee who is subject to a shelter-in-place order is not able to telework because of a power outage or similar extenuating circumstance. That employee would therefore be eligible for paid sick leave during the period of the power outage or extenuating circumstance. So that's number one. The second reason is that the employee has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine related to COVID-19. Now, we talked about a definition of healthcare provider under the exemption, but the definition of healthcare provider here is much more limited. Really, here we're talking about medical professionals who are capable of diagnosing serious health conditions. The third reason is if the employee is experiencing COVID-19 symptoms and is seeking a medical diagnosis. And the Department of Labor recognizes those symptoms as fever, dry cough, shortness of breath, or any other COVID-19 symptoms identified by the CDC. Seeking a medical diagnosis means actually taking affirmative steps to obtain that medical diagnosis. 
So as an example, an employee experiencing COVID-19 symptoms may take paid sick leave for time spent making, waiting for, or attending an appointment for a test for COVID-19. The fourth category is if the employee is, is caring for an individual subject to an order described in one, a quarantine or isolation order, or self-quarantine as described in number two. Now, individual here could be an immediate family member, a person who regularly resides in the employee's home, or a similar person with whom the employee has a relationship that creates that expectation that the employee would care for the person if he were quarantined or she was self-quarantined. Really, they are talking about personal relationships. The Department of Labor does not include uh, individuals with whom the employee has no personal relationship. The sixth category is if the employee is caring for a child whose school or place of care is closed or child care provider is unavailable for reasons related to COVID-19. Now, some important key points about this reason. There must be no other suitable person available to care for the child in order to qualify under this reason. So an employee can't take paid sick leave to care for his or her child unless, but for the need to care for the child, the employee would be able to perform his or her work for his or her employer, either at the normal work site or by telework. So if you're able to work or telework, this doesn't qualify you. Keep in mind also that the FFCRA and the Department of Labor regulations encourage employers and employees to implement highly flexible telework arrangements that allow employees to perform work potentially at unconventional times while tending to family and other responsibilities. So the Department of Labor provides an example where an employee can agree with an employer to perform telework for COVID-19 related reasons on the following schedule. They give this example, 7 to 9 a.m., then a break, 12.30 to 3 p.m., then a break, and then 7 to 9 p.m., again, uh, on, weekday, on weekdays. This would allow an employee to help teach children whose schools close and then reserve work times when there are fewer distractions. The last category under the paid sick leave qualifying reason is if the employee is experiencing any other substantially similar condition specified by the Secretary of Health and Human Services in consultation with the Secretaries of Labor and Treasury. Now, HHS has not yet identified any substantially similar uh, condition that would allow an employee to take paid sick leave, but if they do, then the Department of Labor would issue guidance about that, but nothing yet. So those are all the qualifying reasons that an employee uh, could use for paid sick leave under the FFCRA. What about paid expanded family and medical leave? Well, an employee qualifies for paid expanded family and medical leave if the employee is caring for a child whose school or place of care is closed or a child care provider is unavailable, just like number five, for reasons related to COVID-19. Now, unlike paid sick leave, which is something relatively new, expanded family and medical leave is an expansion of the Family and Medical Leave Act, the FMLA. Many of you may be familiar with that. The FFCRA adds a new category, but it doesn't extend or expand on the amount of time. The maximum is still 12 weeks of leave under the FMLA. 
So where an employee has already taken some FMLA leave in the current 12-month leave year, the maximum 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave under the FSCRA is reduced by that amount. So for example, if the employer uses the calendar year as the 12-month FMLA leave year, and let's say an employee took three weeks of leave in January 2020 for the employee's own serious health condition. That is a current uh, category under the FMLA right now. Then the employee would only have nine weeks of expanded family and medical leave available at that point. What about notice? So we've talked about the reasons. What kind of notice does an employee have to provide? So generally, an employer may only require notice after the first workday or portion of it for which an employee takes paid leave. After the first workday, the Department of Labor regulations have said that it will be reasonable for an employer to require notice as soon as practicable under the facts and circumstances of the particular case. However, the, the regulations also say if taking leave due to that school closure or childcare availability reason, if leave is foreseeable, an employee is required to provide notice as soon as practicable. Now, just because those are the limitations on an employer doesn't mean that an employee couldn't provide notice sooner. In fact, the Department of Labor encourages uh, employees to notify employers about their request for leave as soon as practical. Generally, under the regulations, it is reasonable for an employer to require oral notice and sufficient information for an employer to determine whether the requested leave is covered by the FFCRA. Subsequently in the rules, it's generally reasonable for the employer to require the employee to also comply with the employer's usual and customary notice and procedural requirements for requesting leave absent unusual circumstances. And finally, if for whatever reason the employee is unable to provide the notice themselves, uh, it's generally reasonable for the notice to be given by the employee's spokesperson. So this could be a spouse or an adult, adult family member or other responsible party. Now, what type of information must the employee actually provide to the employer? Well, an employee must provide the employer with information, either orally or in writing, to support the requested leave prior to taking leave. Employers can't require documentation beyond what's allowed in the Department of Labor regulations. And under those regulations, an employee is required to provide the following information. So the employee's name, the date or dates for which the leave is requested, the qualifying reason for leave, and a statement representing that the employee is unable to work or telework because of the qualifying reason. Now, depending on the reason for the leave, the employee must also provide additional documentation or information. So for instance, if an employee requests leave because the employee is subject to a quarantine or isolation order or to care for an individual subject to such an order, the employee must provide the name of the government entity that issued the order. Let's say the employee requests leave to self-quarantine based on the advice of a healthcare provider or to care for an individual who is self-quarantining. The employer then, excuse me, the employee should then additionally provide the name of the healthcare provider who gave advice. What about the childcare closure uh, or unavailability category? 
Um, in that situation, the employee must also provide the name of the employee's child, the name of the school place of care or child care provider that has closed or become unavailable, and then a statement that no other suitable person is available to care for the employee's child. Finally, um, the employer may also request an employee to provide such additional information or material as needed for the employer to support a request for tax credits pursuant to the FFCRA. But just note that the employer is not required to provide leave if material sufficient to support the applicable tax credits have not been provided. If an employee fails to give proper notice, the employer should give him or her notice of that failure and an opportunity to provide the required documentation prior to denying the request for leave. So we've talked about the reasons, we've talked about the notice. How long can someone take this leave for? Let's say the employer approves the request. What's the duration of leave? Well, a full-time employee is eligible for up to 80 hours of leave. And a part-time employee is eligible for the number of hours of leave that the employee works on average over a two-week period. For reason number five, which is, again, caring for a child whose school or place of care is closed or child care uh, is unavailable, a full-time employee is, up, is eligible for up to 12 weeks of leave at 40 hours a week, and a part-time employee is eligible for leave for the number of hours the employee is normally scheduled to work over that period. Now, leave can actually be taken intermittently. So by that, I mean it can be taken in separate periods of time rather than one continuous period, but only if the employer and the employee agree. Now, this could be in writing, but really it's important to have a clear, mutual understanding between the parties. Now, note that there are limitations on intermittent leave if the employee is required to report to the work site as, as opposed to working uh, via telework. So the rules, the Department of Labor regulations, allow an employer and an employee who reports to a work site to agree that the employee may take paid sick leave or expanded family medical leave intermittently solely to care for the employee's child whose school or place of care is closed or whose child care provider is unavailable because of reasons related to COVID-19. But outside of that situation, that reason, the employee may not take intermittent leave. And the Department of Labor has made this determination because they feel that there is an unacceptably high risk that the employee might spread COVID-19 to other employees when reporting to the employer's work site. Also, again, remember, if an employee has already taken some FMLA leave for other qualifying reasons during the 12-month period, the employee may take up to the remaining portion. Um, but if that leave has already been eaten up, by another reason, you can't take any more expanded family and medical leave. Calculation of pay. So for reasons one through three, so subject to quarantine or isolation order, advised to self-quarantine, or experiencing symptoms and thinking of medical diagnosis, the calculation of pay during this time, because remember, this is all paid leave, is uh, either the regular rate or the applicable minimum wage, whichever is higher up to $511 per day and $5,110 in the aggregate over that two-week period. For leave reasons four and six, so for caring for an individual subject to a quarantine or isolation order or advice to self-quarantine, 
uh, or number six is experiencing a similar condition specified by the HHS, then employees taking leave shall be paid at two-thirds their regular rate or two-thirds the applicable minimum wage, whichever is higher, up to $200 per day and $2,000 in the aggregate over a two-week period. Finally, for leave reason number five, which again is caring for a child whose school or place of care is closed or child care is unavailable, employees taking leave will be paid at two-thirds their regular rate or two-thirds the applicable minimum wage whichever is higher, up to $200 per day and $12,000 in the aggregate over a two-week period. Remember, two weeks of paid sick leave followed by up to 10 weeks of paid expanded family and medical leave. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Sherry to talk about the employer notice requirements. Sherry? Thanks, Abby. You need to give her a minute to catch her breath because I would have been falling all over my words through that. So thank you very much. Let's talk about the required posting. Hopefully by now you have all downloaded your free poster from the Department of Labor. Covered employers must post and keep posted on its premises in conspicuous places, explaining the FFCRA leave provisions as well as how to file a complaint. Now, since so many of us are teleworking, it's hard to be conspicuous. So know that an employer can email the poster, direct mail, or post it electronically on an employee internal or external website. We must all comply. A translation is available, but is not required. You need to note that regardless of whether an employee chooses to exempt an employee under the small business exception, the employer must still post this required notice. Record keeping. Bottom line for this, we must retain all documentation the employee is required to provide for four years, regardless of whether the leave is granted or denied. Now, if the employee is provided oral statements to support his or her request for the paid sick leave or the expanded family and medical leave, the employer must document and maintain such information in its records, again, for four years. These are specific record-keeping requirements so that you can claim your tax credit from the IRS. That was just a quick break, Abby, but now back to you to elaborate. We are in the home stretch now. Um, before I get to the uh, tax benefits, I did want to touch on a few other remaining items just before we uh, finish up. Um, the first, under the FFCRA, I did want to mention the return to work concept. So generally under the FFCRA, the employee generally has the right to be restored to the same or equivalent position upon return to work with certain exceptions. Healthcare coverage, I want to touch on that briefly. An employee who takes expanded family medical and medical leave or paid sick leave is entitled to continued coverage under the employer's group health plan on the same terms as if the employer did not take leave. But again, employees generally must continue to make any normal contributions to the cost of their health coverage. Finally, I'll note that there is right now a temporary non-enforcement period going on. So the Department of Labor has announced that they will not bring enforcement actions against employees for violations occurring within 30 days of enactment. So that's actually March 18th through April 17th. We've got a few days left. 
provided that the employer who is ultimately is found to have violated the FFCRA acts reasonably and in good faith. So let's get to those tax benefits Sherry mentioned. Under the FFCRA, covered employers receive 100% a dollar-for-dollar -dollar reimbursement through tax credits for all qualifying wages paid under the FFCRA, so wages paid to an employee who takes uh, FFCRA leave for qualifying reasons, up to the applicable daily and aggregate payment caps. We talked about those. Also note that applicable tax credits also extend to amounts paid or incurred to maintain health insurance coverage. So the IRS has actually put out some helpful information on their website, and on the next slide, you'll see a link to the IRS website. I would encourage you to continue to check there as information is updated. But one of the things that they provided were some examples, some concrete examples of what this tax benefit actually looks like or how it works. So in the first example they provide, the scenario is this. The employer pays $5,000 in sick leave and is otherwise required to deposit $8,000 in payroll taxes, including taxes withheld from all its employees. The employer could use up to $5,000 of the $8,000 of taxes it was going to deposit for making qualified leave payments. The employer would only be required of the law to deposit the remaining $3,000 on its next regular deposit date. Now let's change the facts a little bit. Let's say that the qualified uh, paid uh, leave is $10,000 and the employer is required to, to deposit again $8,000 in taxes. Now the employer can use the entire $8,000 of taxes in order to make qualified leave payments and then file a request for an accelerated credit for the remaining $2,000. Now, how do you claim the tax credits? Well, what the IRS has said is that in order to claim the tax credits, the employer is advised to maintain the following records for four years. Documentation to show how the employer determined the amount of paid sick leave uh, and expanded family medical leave. So records of work, telework, what the actual leave uh, amounts were. The second category is documentation to show how the employer determined the amount of qualified health plan expenses that the employer allocated to wages. The third category is copies of any completed IRS forms uh, 7200 that the employer submitted to the IRS. Next is copies of the completed IRS form 941 that the employer submitted to the IRS or for employers that use third-party payers to meet their employment tax obligations records of information provided to the third-party payer regarding the employer's entitlement to the credit claimed on the 941. And then finally, other documents, a catch-all, needed to support its request for tax credits pursuant to IRS applicable forms, instructions, or information that must be followed to claim the tax credit. Again, there is a link to the IRS website. I would encourage you uh, to visit their website uh, for more information as this concept develops. Additional resources. So the area of employment law, employment generally, is complex, and it's governed by a multitude of state and federal laws and regulations. The Department of Labor has developed its first step tool, which, according to the Department of Labor, this helps employers determine what Department of Labor regulated laws apply to them. In addition, be aware that other state and federal agencies have created guidance documents related to COVID-19 and employment. So the Department of Labor, in addition to the FFCRA, 
has provided guidance about OSHA, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, as well as uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, the Texas Workforce Commission has resources, as does the EEOC about the Americans with Disabilities Act. So be sure to look for those additional resources as well. And with that, that concludes my presentation. Thank you both so much for sharing this wonderful knowledge. This does wrap up the time we have for today's program. For those that would like to claim CME credit for this podcast, go to www.texmed.org slash CME to go. Register and complete the CME requirements for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you back at the next program.